0: Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from the past chief engineer at Bose on what you can learn from best practices and product development processes at the biggest product brands in the world.
1: You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast. Now, onto the show.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce John Carter to the show. John was the chief engineer for Bose for over 12 years, most notably being the name behind noise-canceling headphones. After that, he founded TC Gen and has spent 22 years working with some of the biggest hardware brands in the world on improving their product development processes. He's also a fellow writer with me at Forbes. Today, John is gonna share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can use best practices from the leading hardware development teams in the world to improve your product design, launch, and scaling journey by understand what it takes to succeed in the long run, utilizing customer feedback, getting to the market fast, and many other development secrets. Now, on to the episode. Hey, John, welcome to the show.
2: Glad to be here, Kevin.
0: It's quite interesting, for the show, I realized that we had a client and you are also the head of technology for Bose, not at the same time, but quite an interesting commonality.
2: Exactly. And and I started, my first job was at Bose. I studied with Professor Bose and worked with him being a teaching assistant in acoustics. And then uh, he brought me under his wings and he and I worked closely together during earlier stages of the company.
0: Amazing. And give us a bit of a background on how you got from there to the major leadership position that you're in today, working with a number of Fortune 500 hardware brands. And what was that pathway now? And uh, give us a bit of a description of what you're doing today.
2: Well, basically, the journey started when I was at Bose and I was really trying to improve our execution and product development. And Dr. Bose was just fantastic in terms of networks and relationships. So we went out and we benchmarked product development across the world and visited companies like Sony, Toshiba, Sharp, a lot of Japanese companies, European companies, and really got uh, some insight into best practices and product development. And I took those. I wanted to do my own thing. And I took some of the lessons that I'd learned from that and really started to focus on a niche area, which is product development consulting, but really on the process side, not on the the execution side. And I have such a passion for bringing technology and people together. And to me, this is the hardest product development and product design is how do you get a one mindset? Because the, the technical issues are there, they're rational, but the human factors, you got to work with a team and so forth. And I was able to basically share my benchmarking knowledge, my metrics with a number of corporations. And one of our first clients was Apple. And I worked with Apple and created with them. The ANPP or Apple New Product Process. And it was built on metrics. That's actually how I got started. But really, as I got into it, and as they realized, they were really looking at how do they scale? How do they grow? How do they execute? And so we worked with them on a very light touch process that enabled them to make decisions faster. And more quickly and speed the teams to market without tripping over each other. And then once we did work with Apple, our work expanded to a number of global brands where we really helped them with both innovation and execution. I just have a passion for that area, Kevin.
0: That's incredible. I look forward to talking deeper about these processes that you built in because as hardware startups and emerging product brands, I always want to know for these clients and for the listeners here on the show, what is it that the best in the world are doing in their development processes so that we can try and mimic that and try and learn from what they do well and from the mistakes that they make along the way? You've actually had the opportunity to work with a number of these major brands. Other ones include, obviously, Amazon's one of the big players that you've worked with, and Bose, and of course, the work with Apple and many others. But it's incredible for you to actually see this at the highest levels so that we can understand how to apply it today. I want to start with innovation because that's a big one that you've worked with a number of these firms on. How do you do innovation great from what you've seen, both in the process and, and what those companies actually do to succeed?
2: Yeah, there are a couple of secrets. One of the things that I think is probably underplayed and really important is the amount of investment that it takes to innovate. Innovation is not free. And this myth of suddenly a great idea occurs to someone and they scribble on a napkin and then raise $50 million to do a new product idea is crazy. That just doesn't happen. Innovation takes sustained effort and a budget to really propel that forward over the many potholes you're going to uncover as if you work on the innovation process. So the first thing is you have to allocate some spending for it. And a rule of thumb I use is about 10% of your product development, you should put in the innovation category in terms of investment. So, you know, one out of every $10, you really spend on on those transformational ideas. The second thing that I think is really important when it comes to innovation is something that I learned early at Bose called adjacency. And that is when you're trying to innovate, don't try and innovate a new technology, a new market, new customers, new features, and a whole set of new challenges, but rather, what do you do well now? And if you were to change one variable to make a step change in your business, but just one variable, what should it be? Should you go after new distribution? Should you look at really a technology leapfrog? But in all cases, it should be adjacent to your expertise. So moving from one category to another where they're close but different is the best way to innovate. You can make bold steps by making small changes, but change just one dimension at a time. And I think your innovations are are most likely going to be successful. And the last thing is don't share it with customers too early. There's a, you know, a real dilemma about you know, understanding product market fit and and is your product idea going to be successful? You first really need to invest time in thinking through the concept itself before you bring it forward to, uh, to other people look at. And this is especially true in new to the world categories. So those are three ideas that I would really recommend that people pursue in terms of investment adjacency, and deferring customer contact until you have a real idea of what you're planning to do.
0: That's incredibly powerful. And those three, they're actually somewhat connected, especially the first two. I love the fact that you coined the concept of bringing it down to your you know, core competency, slightly adjacent, not trying to innovate in every different category at once. And this really comes down, especially to new hardware development and something we see all the time, which is feature creep, trying to be too many things to too many people. It could be features on the product itself. It could be innovations in the way you're selling it. It can be a new market entrant itself. If you're trying to do all of these innovations together, it's going to be incredibly difficult. For many reasons, but that also applies to your concept about the cost of innovation. Because the more complicated that you actually plan to develop this, if you're planning to do all these different innovations simultaneously and not really focusing on doing your one core innovation great, it's going to be very costly, probably prohibitively costly to the point where you burn out before you actually get the core innovation that would have been so great, that small incremental difference. And that is what makes such a big deal. I don't think a lot of people realize in hardware, especially, that you don't have to make a terribly ground-shaking new product idea to be a success. You can be just a few percent better than what's out there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be cheaper. It could be cheaper, better, faster, more innovative, more useful, less pain points, you name it. There's a whole laundry list of ways that you could argue that you're a few percent better, but all it takes is a small incremental shift. And that really aligns back with those three key elements that you've talked about there.
2: Yeah, and Kevin, I'm so glad you bring up this whole concept of feature creep, because this, I think companies confuse agile with feature creep. And the whole idea, especially in hardware development, is do your homework up front and then execute fast and then get it to market and then iterate. But don't spend a lot of time creeping fe- features in the beginning of the program, but actually put down an invention idea, execute on it give it to the market, they'll tell you where to take those features next. But uh, otherwise, you can just burn up enormous amounts of time and money by not knowing really what you want to do. It's much more sensible to actually do two product iterations than to have one very long, messy product iteration.
0: Particularly powerful in hardware, where of course, agile has been, let's call it borrowed from the software world with this idea of continual development. Well, the difference between software and hardware is you can't bug fix hardware piece once it's manufactured that is the thing and it's done uh, arguably in some electronics yes there there's maybe a hybrid role but for the actual physical hardware components there's no bug fix after that gets to market but there is feedback that feedback can be used to then apply the concept of agile to your next version so you get a few units of and we're a huge advocate of get even a few hundred units out to the market, especially as a small company, learn from those, and then plan in your actual development in your business case model to do another round, as you said, your second round of iteration there based on real user feedback from people who bought the product and are now giving you real deep feedback into what they like, and more importantly, what they don't like, which can really help you guide that, let's call it the hardware revised agile process to be more in line with how reality works in the hardware innovation space.
2: I'm glad we're talking about Agile as it applies to hardware because there's so many misconceptions there. And there actually, I think you've probably seen the same kind of errors that I've seen. First of all, if you look at the 12 principles of the Agile manifesto, turns out nine out of 12 apply to hardware. It's only a few that don't. And one of them is, you know, you do work in two-week increments or a sprint, and that's just not possible with tooling and, and CAD design and, and creating hardware projects that are successful. But if you look at all the other attributes of the Agile manifesto, such as getting early customer feedback, or such as an empowered team, these apply absolutely to hardware. So I think there's a the big myth about application of agile doesn't, doesn't work for hardware. You're absolutely right. You can't fix it in the field. If you have a defect, you're going to ship a defect. So there's some fundamental differences, but there are also some fundamental principles that you can apply to hardware development and move quickly
0: you want to run through some of those principles that are, that you find have really worked well, especially looking at these bigger levels, like looking at products that are successful on Amazon or Apple products or even the work at Bose? How do those things apply to startups or even scaling product brands that are looking to do that next innovation?
2: That's a really good question. I think the first and foremost is to have empowered teams, you know, to really allow the team to succeed or fail on its own Scale, I think, is incredible. And Agile really promotes having a dedicated, empowered, self-directive team. So, that to me is number one and then number two has to do with customer contact. Now, in Agile, what they recommend doing is frequent customer contact. In hardware, though, it may make more sense for you to rotate through the type of feedbacks that you get. For example, you may want to get some feedback from your distribution or sales channel or someone that's working as a rep for your firm. And then a little bit later on, you might go to a reviewer, a third party that's really on top of the industry, but is not a direct consumer itself. Either one of those two examples are direct consumers. And then as you evolve and iterate, then it's time to really try it with true customers, people that would potentially buy your product. So I think when you think about integrating customer feedback into your design and thinking about agile, you really need to think carefully about when and who do you expose the ideas to get feedback from. But getting feedback is really a super idea, but not too early. You need to have crystallized idea and have a clear value proposition. So I think those are some fundamental principles from Agile for Software that I would recommend for every hardware inventor and, and entrepreneur.
0: I love the concept of empowerment. Just from a design firm angle, we definitely see a fairly strong divide with certain clients that are extremely self-directed even with very little experience in the field. Whereas others want to learn and understand from some of the best designers in the country on what they've seen over the hundreds of products that they've worked with. And you probably see that quite a bit in your industry as well. Whereas you've got so much real tangible experience, so many people miss the opportunity to simply ask the question, what would you do here? Or they're actually creating processes or even just fundamentally misguiding the development plan to disrupt what could be incredible design or incredible development or or incredible advice from some really seasoned experts. And I see that time and time again, I would actually say, if I look at a client mix, probably half the clients are heavily, heavily underutilizing that simply as a, a thought process to say, how can I lean on these experts? And how can I rely on some of their experience, as opposed to, you know, how can I take my Whatever the idea might be and, and force it. And that's where whether it's working with your design team, which is you know the perspective there, or whether it's working with your customers, you really have to have a very open mind to your customers. And I see it hand in hand again, probably again, half the clients when they do get that customer feedback, the first thing that they do, the very first piece of feedback we hear is, oh, this person has no idea what they're talking about. Well, that's a real customer and they've got real feedback for you. So yes, maybe it is the one outlier, but what ends up happening more often than than less is you start to see a pattern, but it takes so much time because the inventor, the designers, the engineers, whatever it might be, are so heavily vested into that project. It takes a long time before they open up their mind. They become empathetic. They put themselves in the shoes of that customer and they say, okay, maybe they've said it wrong. Maybe I don't necessarily believe them, but why do they feel that way? Why did they choose those words?" And how can we analyze those words to make a better product in the future?
2: Right, so this really brings to mind a a couple of examples that are close to heart, and that is in working on the noise-canceling headphones. When we were first inventing it, we thought it was biggest benefit would be sound quality. You'd have better bass, clear highs, and and the performance would be vastly improved. Well, we took it out to customers and we realized they didn't care about that, What they liked is noise reduction. (laughs) They didn't care about the sound quality. I mean, they did, but that was in the first order of improvement. And we really listened to them and, and optimized it for noise cancellation as opposed to its original invention idea. So I think it's really important not to have solution locked. But another problem that I faced at Bose and, and at other organizations, and it must be a huge problem for you, Kevin, is that every executive thinks they know industrial design. You know, they may not know mechanical engineering, they may not know CAD system, but every executive thinks they know industrial design, (laughs) but the fact is they don't. And they need to be open enough so that they can really collaborate with creative companies like yourself to really create something that's breakthrough or novel, just not me too. And there are so many people who kind of play the part of industrial design, but on TV only. In reality, these executives need to open up their mind and, and allow some experts to take some risks.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that. It's one of those things, right? Everybody feels that they'd be a great politician or a great movie actor potentially, right? But the reality is there's a tremendous amount of skill, let's say most of the time as a caveat here, that goes into those roles and industrial design is no different. Keep in mind what an industrial designer does for their entire life from schooling through to the CAD work that they're doing. To all of the work that they're doing in terms of the meetings, their entire job is figuring out what the user wants and what technology is available. And a number of other stakeholders like the business model and the manufacturing costs and on and on. They are the intersection of all these key attributes. Industrial design is basically the hub of your mechanical engineering, your electronic engineering, if it has electronics, and of course, all those other stakeholders that we talked about before and a bunch more. That's what they are doing all day, every day. So through that, they get a tremendous amount of experience over the years of doing this. I look at our our head industrial designers at our firms are 20 plus years of doing this all day, every day of their working career. So although it may look like something that everyone can pick up and have great advice on, these people are incredibly talented, not just at understanding what they want. This is an opinion thing, but understanding what various stakeholders want to lead to generally the most successful commercial product for the market, meaning the customers love it it's well-priced, it's manufactured of a quality grade, and it's scalable. And that is really the core of a good and experienced industrial designer. So I'm a huge advocate for that. And I really appreciate that you brought it up. I think you're the first person to bring it up on the show, the sheer value of what specifically an industrial designer does in the overall product development process.
2: I'll add another to your list, which I think is super important, and that is all innovations. We talked about innovations at the beginning of this conversation. All innovations really should do something better. And you're going to have to do something different in order to be better. Otherwise, it would just be me too. Well, who knows better than an industrial designer how to express that innovation in the physical package? So when a consumer sees that, they actually can see a styling that's different that communicates that innovation so the product sells itself. And so I think that's a fifth element of what a a resource like your team can do is you, you take the innovation and then you express it in design so it telegraphs or signals to a consumer, this is different and it's better and you can see why. So I think that your ability to catalyze and amplify innovation through physical package design and industrial design and styling is something really important that most entrepreneurs should consider.
0: John, much appreciated. And the last thing I'll ask you for before we leave, is there any other words of wisdom, you know, either high level or in the weeds that you want to share uh, before we say goodbye?
2: I just think it comes back to sticking to your guns. If you want to innovate, you have to invest and you have to show consistent focus. And you do that and you do adjacent work, you're going to be successful.
0: John, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. Much appreciated and looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Kevin. Take care.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. com for a free consultation from one of Maco Designs, 4 Design Studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.